from about the 7th to 10th centuries AD. So, you know, uh, essentially almost a, a thousand years after Christ. And what they're doing is they want to codify and bring together the, the consonantal text and the reading tradition into one single whole. And that's what they do. They devise new symbols, little dots and dashes, in order to capture that reading tradition. And they, what they do, they do is really ingenious. They have such a reverence for that consonantal text that they don't want to disturb it at all. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we are on Season 5 Apologetics, and we have Dr. Casper Ozelins on, and he's going to be helping us talk about Old Testament textual criticism. So before we get into this episode, just some housekeeping show note reminders for you guys, as always. There is uh, some links there, how to connect with us, how to use our resources, um, and just get more out of the show. Uh, first and foremost, uh, there's the Bridge Builders um, information. You're going to find that through the Patreon link. You heard me just mention Lagos Bible Software, our main sponsor. Uh, they are a, our main bridge builder. And then halfway through this episode, you'll hear some words from our, some of our other sponsors. Uh, if you, as an individual person, you can be a bridge builder as well. So just hit that uh, Patreon link and find out the different levels of giving. Obviously, do not have it take away from any of your weekly giving that you give to your church. Um, and speaking of a local church, what we're prescribed to do worship our holy God in person. If you click the church finder link on our show notes, you can type in your zip code and find the closest reformed and confessional churches near your area. And then you can connect with Peter and myself about the show and keep up to date with, with um, uh, shows coming up recordings. We already did published episodes, book giveaways, just daily content conversations, that kind of thing. We're on Twitter and Instagram. Both the handles are the same at guilt grace pod and our email is guiltgracepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on YouTube. Just type in the name of our show, guilt, grace, gratitude podcast and hit subscribe. Yes, these are put on YouTube as we are recording it. It automatically just uh, uploads the videos so you can see how the conversations look. If, if just YouTube is a better platform for you, we have that available for you. So um, I'll let Peter further introduce Casper Ozelins on today. Yeah, it's the one of the few names that neither of us can can say right. So I'll, we'll let Dr. Ozelins pronounce his last name correctly because neither of us can do this well. But he's uh, the, the newly minted Associate Professor of Old Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He was trained at UCLA in, in Semitic languages, Indo-European, historical linguistics, uh, master seminary with his MDiv, uh, was a research associate, 
an Old Testament Tyndale house, and the uh, talking about the Old Testament ancient Near East. He's married to Yeva. I'm assuming that's how I'm saying it. If not, then I'm sure he will uh, correct me on that. And then they have two children, Eric's and Volters. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Rosalinds. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so I guess say, my yeah. name is not going to be very uh, positive uh, in terms of if I pronounce it for you guys. I think you're not going to get uh, very far with it, but I might as well just go ahead and give it out there for you guys. It's yeah. Kaspar's Urzolings. There you go. People know how to say that in Bravo. And, yeah. um, did I say your wife's name right? Is it Yeva? Yeah, Eva. Eva. Her. She's just it, basically the Latvian version of Eve. So, um, huh. cool. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. And awesome. our two sons' names are Eriks and Walters. You notice, might notice the S, a lot of S's, a guy's names, and that's basically similar thing that you see in in uh, biblical Greek. For those of you who have taken biblical Greek, there's a nominative singular S, um, yep. and yep. you know when you have it in the nominative case. So yeah, it's a yeah. related language. Uh, Latvian, my language, where I come from, Latvia, it's actually ultimately related distantly to to Greek and huh. even English. So. Hmm. Um, there you go. You guys are gonna learn about Old Testament and Latvian. <laughs> We're well, already yeah, learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like this. That's awesome. And this is um, I I read on Twitter because I read everything on Twitter to be honest. But uh, this is a new this is a new job for you at, at uh, SBTS. So maybe if you want to tell people where you were at and and how you got this position, what how like how how's your transition been? What's what's it what's it been like teaching at Southern or about to teach at Southern? Yeah, I just uh, completed about my first week of teaching, and you know, it's uh, I've been here about four weeks. We've been here four weeks, so it's mm -hmm. been a whirlwind. I've never lived in Kentucky before. I kind of grew up in California, mm -hmm. so Kentucky is a, a new thing for me. But it's it's a gorgeous campus. If any, any of you have been there, it's really uh, historic. I've been there once beautiful. in 2012. Oh uh, yeah, so it's it is really. It is. I mean, I, I, I'm loving everything what it looks like, and, and people have been very welcoming to us, and uh, lovely, lovely time with the president as well, and and uh, other faculty, and so awesome. I'm really excited to to get going. Um, I'm I'm coming from immediately from Tyndale House Research Center yep. out in the UK. I was there for about three and a half years, uh, at another wonderful place, and a, really a glorious time there. That's where I kind of got my teeth uh, cut on on the old Old Testament uh, side of things because uh, actually my PhD, my doctorate at UCLA, isn't really in Old Testament at all. It's actually yeah. unrelated topic. So it's Indo-European linguistics, which I was trained in for my doctorate, and that's basically uh, the study of of language as it changes across time. And one of the goals is to hurt having that as a background. Ancestor languages, proto languages. Um, yeah. One of them is Indo-European. Um, so Indo-European happens to be the, the parent language of most of the languages of Europe. They're related. They're kind of cousins or sisters and brothers, and including a lot of the uh, languages of Southwest Asia. That's why it's called Indo-European. So if you think of a map, you got Iceland, you know, far out in the West, all the way to India. Most of the languages within that zone, with the exception of the Middle East, belong to one huge super family called oh. Indo-European. So it's a big yeah. field of study. Wow. Nice. Yeah. And we're yeah. learning so much and we're barely past just your name. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. We're covering yeah, <clears throat> kind of a broad sweep. But so you already kind of said this. Maybe if you want to dive into some people who don't know you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up in, um, in Latvia. It's a tiny country in Northern Europe. Um, and when I was about four, 
we left. My parents took us and we moved to the UK initially. I was there for about three years. And then we moved to LA, Los Angeles, where I kind of grew up for the most part, even though I spent childhood summers in, in Latvia, they were quite formative for me. Yeah. Grew to love my home country. And, and that led to me wanting to go back to my home country and study there. So I kind of on a whim, I uh, I went to college there and it was a little bit challenging initially because there's a difference between, you know, speaking spoken Latvian at home and academic Latvian. I re- never had really studied in my home country before. Hmm. So it was a bit of a challenge, but I, I really loved it. I got my bachelor's degree there. I met my my wife there, my future wife there. And um, and then I went back to L.A. To, to do my doctorate. I always had kind of set my sights on UCLA. It was it has perhaps the top Indo-European studies program, at least in the States, if not in the world. So it was really a place that I, I had been looking forward to, to pursuing a doctorate there. I kind of grew up with a love for ancient languages, dead languages, uh, just uh, was an oddity of mine. Hmm. Um, I even, here's a fun fact, I even um, invented languages while I was a, a teenager. It was just a <laughs> hobby of mine. So I, <laughs> yeah. I would love to, you know, create. You're not just a nerd. You're a nerd who creates things. Like, like, of, like yeah, a, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We're all like, nerds. Yeah. They're just levels of nerd. And not yeah, like you, yeah, the nerddom. Yeah. You got to reach certain status, uh, statuses <laughs> to make so, your own language. So while the rest of us were like thinking maybe pig Latin was something <laughs> clever, you yeah. were doing, you were doing something actually above making that. up languages. Yeah. Not just pig Latin. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, unless anyone think that I was, you know, dealing with Esperanto, I don't know if you've heard of the term, the the language Esperanto is kind of an invented language. I, that, I, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I didn't like Esperanto because the thing about Esperanto is this inventor claimed, oh, we only have what I think is 16 rules in this language. And um, it's like the, unlike any other language, it's the most simplest. It's the simplest language to learn. Um, I, I liked languages to be natural. I want I wanted my invented languages to feel like they have irregularities. They uh, have a mystique about them. I invented scripts. So I was really kind of in the line of Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. Oh, that that's right. Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's right. <clears throat> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I of course, a childhood hero of mine was Indiana Jones. I really kind of admired his ability to you know, I thought, well, what a dream job. He He's yeah. in the classroom. He's teaching students, adoring students all the day. And then, you know, <laughs> then, then he heads off on a great adventure to to find some ancient manuscripts or whatnot. That was like, yeah, that's that's going to be me. Yeah. So There you go. Yeah. yeah. You still got that opportunity, too. Now you're teaching. So now you can go off. Yeah, I got one side, things. though. You know, I might participate in some digs sometime. We'll see. This is our, yeah, we got the Latvian Indiana Jones in front of us. There now. you go. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, kind of also reminds me of those those memes where you have um you know various perceptions what people think you are oh yeah oh, yep, this yep. amazing yep. yeah uh, researcher then is what you really hope you are and maybe it <laughs> surpasses that and then what your mom thinks you are <laughs> yeah. and then yep. what you no, actually do she still <laughs> thinks you're making up scripts when you're talking yeah, about there you go yeah yeah, yeah. That's, so, yeah that's so awesome. to move the story along um I actually became a believer during my doctoral studies. At, at That's UCLA. what I read. Yep. Yeah. So I had a uh, pretty dramatic conversion to Christ. Um, and for just for background sake, uh, I, I I grew up in a in a movement called um, Seventh Day Adventism. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and I really had a radical conversion to Christ in in my doctoral studies, and that started me on a, a process about a three year journey of trying to figure out whether I could stay Adventist or, or, or whether I really had to leave. And 
it was agonizing. It was really hard to to deal with all of the issues. I mean, my my family was uh, and is you know, and some of them are still Adventists. Hmm. And, um, I I didn't want to hurt them. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. I didn't want to you know antagonize. I'm not confrontational by nature, um, but I I just grew to the realization that I couldn't stay um, there. And I felt that it would, I would be compromising my, my gospel witness. Hmm. Another part of the reason was, you know, with, within a few months of my conversion, I, I just came to believe in the doctrines of grace. I came reformed and uh, just for some reason, I, it just made sense to me. Um, I really know, I really can feel and understand the, the, uh, that, that statement from scripture that they shall all be taught of God, because I didn't really feel like anyone taught me about, calvinism i didn't you know really yeah. know much about calvin but it just uh really felt natural as i was reading in scripture mm. um so that at the end of that process i knew i wanted to really use my abilities my linguistic abilities uh not just for the sake of academia secular academia i really wanted to teach at a seminary in fact mm. i i kind of had a distant dream that maybe i could be at southern one day but it was really <laughs> kind of a pipe dream there you um, go. And kind of on a whim i i applied to uh, the master's seminary which was right there in the, yep. uh, los angeles i just yep. wanted to go to seminary and so i went to seminary ironically after my phd which is <laughs> right yeah. That most yeah. people take yeah yeah, that's cool. I like that. I was there for about three years. And then I was wondering at the end, you know, okay, how is God going to combine my, my PhD in Indo-European linguistics, completely unrelated field, not even biblical studies with, uh, you know, a kind of lowly MDiv. Last I checked, you kind of have to have a PhD to teach at a, at a seminary uh, <laughs> in biblical studies or some yeah. kind of related field. Um, and, and God's answer really was Tyndale House. He brought me a kind of miraculous series of events to me uh, at least seemed uh, quite amazing uh, to Tyndale House and uh, I got to know Dr. Peter Williams oh, there yeah. at uh, Tyndale House and all the rest of uh, the great staff there yeah it is incredible right. yeah 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 really really wonderful people humble and and uh, love yeah. for scripture they have a very mm -hmm. high view of scripture God's word and and yet they have a rigor about them they really uh, emphasize the study of the God's word in the original languages, which I really uh, resonate with. Yeah. So I was there. I was uh, studying Old Testament issues. We were looking at onomastics, uh, looking in particular at um, the thousands of personal names we see in the Old Testament and trying to understand them because, you know, names are kind of a, uh, a capsule, time capsule that say something about the times in which they were used certain names are popular at certain time periods other names are not so popular yep. the same time period and we wanted to compare them this is a massive ongoing project kind of 10-year project with um the names that are surrounding uh in the ancient near east uh, there are also thousands of names attested because we want to compare like with like and see observe certain patterns and see whether we can you know learn new things about uh, about the old testament names and um and, and their actual context. So it's uh, it's a really ongoing project. They tasked me at that time with uh, studying a language called Ugaritic. It's a, mm -hmm. kind of a cousin of, of Hebrew that was spoken mm -hmm. around the time of the biblical judges, a little bit north of Israel in present-day Syria. It died out, unlike Hebrew, it wasn't revived. And so it was discovered, uh, the site and the language were discovered by accident mm -hmm. um, about 100 years ago. And lo and behold, the language that they deciphered 
which was written in a cuneiform script, happened to be related, a cousin of Hebrew, which got scholars really excited because now we can study this as a, a background to the Old Testament and learn some new things about the Old Testament. Mm, that's, so that's where I was in. I was involved with that for about three and a half years. And another series of uh, providential uh, circumstances and events brought me to Southern, which is where I am right now here. And uh, by God's mercy and grace, it's been a great journey so far. Awesome. That's, that's, that's awesome. The, the most, that's, that's the most thorough background we've ever gotten on this show. And I, I love <laughs> Sorry, it. That's a, no, usually just get like, no, I like that. Usually just get like, yeah, I'm from here. I went there and then I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I like the, the fact that people now, I, they don't know you know you, but at least they have this in background, which is, I think, yeah. helpful to learn. Well, you know, I just give glory to God. I mean, it, it's such a, a journey of God's mercy and grace in my life, and I am overwhelmed by by the cross and by what he's done for me and how he's blessed me. And so I'm just, just a glory to God for this. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, this tees up this question really well. And kind of want to add this to the question too, is just um, defining terms and whatnot, because this is the beginning part of our new season on apologetics. And there are some new terms that people have might not been introduced to yet. Um, in future episodes, you'll hear it more and more. One of them is like textual criticism so um, if, you know, if somebody off the street just walked up to you, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why this would ever happen, but let's just pretend. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Nick's or, dream is somebody walks up to him and is like, what's Reformed Theology? It's like, well, let me tell you. I was thinking, you know, maybe you're at Thanksgiving table or you're, yeah, let's just say some random person you run into on the street is like, <laughs> huh, what is Old, Test Old Testament textual criticism mean? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you've done, obviously you've done work on Old Testament textual criticism manuscripts what are yep. those you've done yeah, work yeah. on uh, like understanding those maybe you can introduce what that is the audience and just the like things that kind of are all related to this subject um this topic um you kind of already described like what what got you into the field and uh maybe just a little bit more layered uh why is this topic and this study of old testament textual criticisms and knowing the manuscripts well great for reliability of old testament and apologetics yeah yeah great uh, there's a whole you know semester worth of topics <laughs> yeah. to, to cover but yeah please answer brief, i'm going to try to yeah. be a little bit briefer this time <laughs> um you got two terms there you got textual and criticism and i think for most of us when we hear the word criticism are especially related to bible we are kind of red flag pops up and wonder what's what's going on here what's this criticism mm -hmm. um it's not that kind of criticism so there's a kind of criticism which is in a, in a sense um ultimately ends up being critical of the bible although yeah. the term isn't meant to be that so there's higher criticism and lower criticism and higher criticism essentially is the kind of criticism that evangelicals would uh be a bit more skeptical about which is basically the idea that you are you know dividing up the text into various sources and you you can feel like you can know exactly which sources are lie behind the documents of the of the old and new testaments yeah. and, and um, some divine authorship in that process all that stuff yeah exactly it it, uh, it kind of uh slices and dices scripture that's not to say that there can't be sources yeah, exactly. uh, behind our final uh books but um uh, we're just a little bit more skeptical about the way that they go about doing that. So that's higher criticism. Lower criticism, or also known as textual criticism, is really much more basic and fundamental. That's why it's called lower criticism. It's dealing with the fact that when you have 
manuscripts, and I'm going to define that in a second, when you copy the word of God or any document prior to the inventing of the uh, printing press uh, in, the, in the 15th century, you had to copy anything you wanted to distribute more widely uh, by hand, one letter at a time. So you have an exemplar, and then you have the new text that you are creating, and you have to take your eye, look at the exemplar, shift it to the new text, and in the process of doing that, you are inevitably going to be creating uh, errors, accidental errors. Um, and so textual criticism is the the essentially the field that tries to uh, get behind those errors and compare different manuscripts which disagree with one another in order to, the goal is to restore as best we can the original reading of the author from the point uh, at which the, the, the text is now distributed or disseminated more widely, more broadly. And this is really important for the Bible because uh, we want everyone to have the Bible and early Christians wanted the Bible to be widely distributed. And so they, mm -hmm. they engaged in a large scale process of copying. And so that naturally brings about more errors because the more you copy, the more copies you have, the more errors you're going to introduce. So that's basically textual criticism broadly defined. This is applies both to New Testament and Old Testament, but you're going to see, as I'm going to describe this further, that Old Testament textual criticism and New Testament textual criticism are really radically different um, animals. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the, and the more manuscripts you have, uh, the better. Well, yeah, so that's the irony is that although the total number of uh, variance differences between the manuscripts is going to rise as you have more manuscripts, it's simply inevitable, you also are increasing the total number of witnesses so the term witness means that this is simply a manuscript that is saying hey this is what my reading is and other witnesses saying hey this is what my reading is and it's really good to have a multiplicity of witnesses because then you can have more on the menu to sort through you can use you know principles of uh textual criticism in order to sort through the variants to establish the best reading hmm. mm -hmm. yeah that's helpful um and so moving moving from this um kind of kind of broader textual criticism stuff in Old Testament. We've we'll have a future conversation with with two New Testament textual critics as well. But for for Old Testament, we've we so I think people are more familiar with New Testament textual criticism potentially because of kind of big writings from Bart Ehrman, a couple of guys where it's more like in our face versus Old Testament. I, I don't think as much as in our face. We we don't hear about it every day. Um so what so this this was questions more for it's not to expose people to like, oh no, this is, I didn't know there's so much stuff, but it's more to like expose them to this stuff. So they're not exposed to it somewhere else. So what, yeah. maybe what, what are the major issues that face Old Testament textual critics? There are a lot. There are so many. And just as a preface to this, I, I kind of landed in Old Testament issues. I think in, well, it, it was God's, in God's providence, but I could have just as easily have gone to the New Testament side of things. But I have to say that when I compare the Old Testament in general, which includes textual criticism, which includes hermeneutics, which includes questions about the Messiah, questions about how we relate the Old Testament to the New Testament. I have to say that we're dealing as Christians, as believers, with much more complex issues. Hmm. And so that really 
in a sense, is a, an invitation to me, also a challenge <laughs> and to other Christians to really engage with this, you know, some 70% of our Bible, which mm-hmm. in a sense, we, in, if we're honest, we don't really know what to do with in some days. Yeah, it's uh, not useful that often. That was written by a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Uh, Dwayne Garrett, t- oh, yeah. came out two years ago. We talked about, uh, the title is The Problem of the Old Testament. And in a sense, that is true, because when we read the Old Testament, it can seem so unfamiliar to us. We can have issues relating, again, what? how do we see Christ in the Old Testament? How do mm-hmm. we properly uh, approach the Old Testament hermeneutically? And now we also get into the questions of textual criticism. So let me just briefly give a couple of differences that really uh, are each of them fairly major. Number one is the, the time period of inscripturation. So mm-hmm. with the New Testament, we have basically a few decades of time in which the old the, the new testament was produced mm-hmm. so we can argue about the dates uh, uh you know when was this book actually written but everyone even uh the uh, the non-evangelicals would be agreed on the fact that these new testament books appeared rapidly within a few decades yep. and so you have a gap between or a fairly neat um bifurcation between the process of writing and producing inscripturation of the new testament and then the process of the transmission of the new testament via manuscripts via copying Hmm. they're really kind of separate categories and they're neatly divided with the old testament we have a completely different situation we can say as evangelicals roughly that the old testament was produced between roughly 1400 bc and 400 bc so you have a thousand year time period Mm -hmm. Now, within that time period, as the Old Testament is developing, as inscripturation is taking place, you have simultaneously the copying of God's word as it is growing within that time period. So we have these overlapping. So in a sense, you're dealing with textual criticism on one level, and we can define this a little bit further. What is the goal of Old Testament textual criticism? Because that's a really important question we want to ask. But on one level, you are dealing with the copying process even before the Old Testament is complete. So that is one issue. Another issue is that we have on some level a larger gap between the final, uh, let's say, the final completion of the Old Testament and our earliest witnesses, which (laughs) basically are going to be the Dead Sea Scrolls. So most of us will know what those are. The Dead Sea Scrolls start appearing around the third century. Yeah. If if people don't know what Dead Sea Scrolls are, we actually had an episode kind of on the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if they want to go back to William Ross, he talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls on our Septuagint episode. So if you want to like, yeah. what the heck is this? He actually gives like a, a full explanation of some of this. So yeah, sorry. It's, it's yeah, more no, Will Ross is a great like, friend. He's a, yeah. And he's a great guy to Septuagint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so you know, there there is a, there's an interesting uh, single uh, single tiny uh well two amulets that we've discovered in the 70s that contain portions of the pentateuch really tiny portions uh, and they they're probably dated to the 7th century so that that is hmm. basically the only part of the old testament that we have hmm. the earliest part that is kind of located within the time period when which during which the old testament is still being created but other than yeah. that we're dealing with beginning with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you have a couple of centuries, hmm. maybe. So a lot longer two, than we have for the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. 
Now it's not too much. I don't want to over, uh, ex- I don't want to exaggerate that, yeah. that gap, but it is a little bit more. Yeah. And we don't want to old... recognize that there's a gap to just, exactly. we're not like, yeah. 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 And the Dead Sea Scrolls are by themselves a little bit fragmentary. Now our New Testament manuscripts in the earliest stages are also fragmentary. So the, you know, the famous papyrus P52 in the second century, most likely is a, it's kind of the size of a credit card. So it's, it's really fragmentary, really small. That's true for a lot of other um, early papyri. So yeah. that is, there's, there's, I don't want to uh, exaggerate the differences, yeah. but there, there is some significance there. Yeah. Um, another issue we're dealing with is that um, we, we're dealing with Hebrew at, and Aramaic. There's about 1% of the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic, but both of these languages are Semitic languages. And Semitic languages are a completely different animal from uh, from Greek and other Indo-European languages. Uh, the, the basic issue is that Semitic languages rely upon a consonantal skeleton. Mm-hmm. If you think of a skeleton, like I'd say any animal or a human, you can divide it one way divided a human body is between the skeleton and let's say the flesh and the skin. Mm-hmm. So if we, uh, in our analogy, think of uh, the consonants as the skeleton, they are the, the basic structure of the language. So you think of verbal roots. If you take a verbal root, K, T, B, three consonants, K, T, B, that is a root in, in uh, Hebrew and other Semitic languages that means uh, writing mm-hmm. and then you can insert within uh, sort of in an interlocking fashion other vowels which serve to give grammatical information that is not inherent to the the lexical meaning of that verbal root so for example kotev is a you you're inserting certain vowels within that those uh, consonants you end up with a participle form someone who is writing or a writer then mm-hmm. if you switch out those vowels with something else, katvu, you end up with a different form. They wrote. Mm-hmm. But you see how the idea of writing is carried through because the consonantal structure retains oh, that. There, yeah. Because of this phenomenon, the Hebrew Bible and uh, all early Semitic uh, languages were only written by and large using consonants. That, and initially, they were. it was very strict. There was only consonants. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a native speaker, even today in modern Israeli uh, Hebrew, mm-hmm. um, is going to read newspaper with consonants. Now, there are vowels, vowel letters, which will help you to understand um, some of it. But still, you're dealing with uh, a really defective text where you have to infer and insert using your mind and the knowledge you have as a native speaker, where the vowels should go. Now, you can do that, and it's very easy. It's effective for native speakers to do that. But if the context is a little bit more difficult, if you're dealing with uh, documents that are thousands of uh, years old um, and you don't even have some of the helping vowels, then obviously you're going to have a a more challenging issue. So alongside this consonantal text, later on, a reading tradition developed quite naturally because you want to learn how to pronounce the text because that is is going to carry a lot of the meaning as well, at least the grammatical meaning. So the consonantal text and the manuscript tradition is developing alongside a reading tradition. In fact, several reading traditions develop. So that's adding a layer of complexity <laughs> that we just simply don't have in the New Testament side of things. Yeah. Then we reach the the time period of the Masoretes, these famous 
uh, a group of scribes that were working mainly around the Sea of Galilee in a city town called Tiberias from about the 7th to 10th centuries AD. So, you know, uh, essentially almost a, a thousand years after Christ. And what they're doing is they want to codify and bring together the, the consonantal text and the reading tradition into one single whole. And that's what they do. They devise new symbols, little dots and dashes, in order to capture that reading tradition. And they, what they do, they do is really ingenious. They have such a reverence for that consonantal text that they don't want to disturb it at all. Now, what do you do when you have to insert vowels in between the consonants? Mm -hmm. Well, they take little dashes and dots and they put it around the letters or mm. inside of the letters, but they never disturb the actual text. Mm. And that way, when you're reading Hebrew, uh, when you're reading these manuscripts, what you're doing essentially is you're reading a letter, reading from right to left. You're reading typically the vowel underneath it. Then you go up to the next consonant to your left then the vowel underneath it and you do that continuing on a zigzag process until you reach the end of the line mm -hmm. so that that brings in a new system because now as textual critics we have to consider uh sometimes the reading tradition will diverge from the consonantal tradition you have different witnesses but the witness in this case is the reading tradition and the masoretes were very faithful they were marking that in they made notes in the margins of their their manuscripts and they marked that but you now as a modern textual critic have to approach the text and wonder am i going to go with the reading tradition or am I going to go with a consonantal tradition? Or am I going to go with something different that maybe is found in a translation like the Septuagint? Mm -hmm. So there's a, you know, there's a, there are many issues that are involved in Old Testament textual criticism. I could easily name off a few more, but we'll stop there for now. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, listeners are, are thankful. And if you guys are confused, I would very much encourage to stop and then rewind a little bit and then re-listen to it because it's it is it is helpful. These may not, we'll have a question later on, like. What does it actually mean for me when I read the Old Testament? And I think there 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 is some ramifications for this that we'll we'll talk about. But one of the one of the bigger issues I've heard um, is is the dating of of like the actual Hebrew text. So when reading different books of the Bible or different books of the Old Testament, depending on like what the Hebrew looks like, it looks like these other documents that are kind of older. It uses like a slightly different wording or different vowels, like you're talking about. So in general, can you describe? like dating Hebrew, like how, like, what does that matter? How does a textual critic do it? Um, what does that mean when we look at certain books of the Bible and say, okay, it's a date at this time or is it dated this time? Uh, what does it mean for us as, as Christians when reading the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. This is where we touch upon one of the issues that I mentioned earlier. And that is the fact that the old Testament was produced roughly within a thousand year time span. Now, every language changes uh imperceptibly uh and slowly and gradually yeah, and just that's, like english that's has to all languages it's kind of universal phenomenon yeah if you look back in over enough generations you're going to see that language has changed really quite radically but it's going on it's sort of a very slow glacial process yeah so one of the illustrations i always like to give to my students is i read a text to them and I, I, you know, I say, uh, well, let me just read it. To you. Well, let me just say it to you guys now. Just a line. Father, father, on helvenum, seen the And they, uh, I'm asking them, okay, what, what is that? What uh -huh. language is that? 
they'll, they'll say, I don't know, is that, it sounds like Norwegian. I don't know. Maybe uh, <laughs> yeah. German. Well, uh, newsflash, this is actually English as it was spoken 1,000 years yeah. ago. So yeah. that English has changed so much within 1,000 years that it's, it's unrecognizable to us. Now, yeah. that is the Lord's Prayer. I just s- cited the Lord's Prayer, huh. the beginning of the Lord's Prayer mm-hmm. to you. But it's like you can't recognize it. Now, yeah. thankfully, thank God, we're not dealing with such a drastic change in the, let's say, the earliest time period of Hebrew and the, the latest one. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, but part of that is obscured because the vowels are represent sort of a later form of Hebrew. So remember that there's a difference between the consonants mm-hmm. and the vowels. And the vowels in the language changed quite a bit more readily and uh, frequently and there are complex changes that go into the the language as it develops the consonants tended to stay stable uh, throughout uh, the history of of uh, Hebrew even before it was written down into the, the Old Testament so we're dealing with uh, some significant changes and differences uh, in the earlier books and the later books now this has become a pretty big debate in uh between let's say more evangelical uh, minded scholars and those who are more critically minded for example in, in the question of when is when was the book of daniel written mm-hmm. now there's a there's a famous scholar sr driver uh, yep. about a century ago who has a famous quote on the language of of daniel he's very confident he says the language of daniel demands a second century bc date so in other words mm. this had to be written down after the events of the prophecies that it's describing. There's no way he could have known, plus also like a lot of other stuff too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, here's where I want to say, and uh, Dr. Williams, uh, uh, Peter Williams uh, has, I think, uh, said similar things uh, to me in in other contexts. We can sometimes rely a bit too much on uh our methodology to say that we're confident about the dating of particular books with the example of daniel for example uh there are certain greek loan words that we see in daniel mm-hmm. which uh they're clearly come from greek um and so uh scholars in the previous generation have uh you know harped upon this and said look it's got to be a hellenistic con- yep. uh, context so yep. alexander the great conquered the the ancient near east and even beyond or um, you know, after, after the time of the, yeah. the prophecies of daniel yep. now when a later scholarship uh, a um a certain scholar by the name of benjamin noonan has published on this and he's taken a look at some of those uh greek loan words and it turns out that the 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 way that the um, loan words were borrowed into um, into these uh, into Daniel, it appears that the the phonology, the sounds, uh, evidence that they come from a dialect that was not the major standard dialect of the time of Alexander's conquest. So when Alexander the Great conquered all of the ancient Near East, he uh, popularized a certain Greek dialect that ended up killing all of the or essentially um, tampering the other competing dialects that were there at the time now if that's the case that these loan words come from a different dialect it might in fact point to the fact that these loan words came in 
to from a different Greek dialect that existed or was more popular, flourishing earlier. Now, it's it's a bit of a d debated issue, and mm -hmm. scholarship goes back on and forth on these issues. But you see that there's a bit of nuance involved here, so we can't be uh, as confident. And there are other factors that relate to the the diversity of the language that we see here. Authors are going to be writing in a different style. Mm -hmm. We might have different dialects within different books of the uh, Hebrew yep. Bible. Um, we're going to have also um, sometimes authors writing in a slightly more archaic style. But nevertheless, I think definitely we do see um, uh, an earlier stage and a later stage, even in the uh, question of things like spelling. So, for example, the name David mm -hmm. is spelled differently in Samuel and Kings yep. and elsewhere than it is in a later book like Chronicles. Yeah. In Chronicles, it's written with a, a helping vowel, a vowel letter, whereas in Samuel and Kings, it's not. And that's clearly telling you that Samuel Kings uh, arose in an earlier time period. What's even more interesting is, though, that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls will often have this fuller expanded typologically later spelling Whereas our later Masoretic uh, um, uh, documents, our manuscripts, so these come from a later time period. Remember, they're about a thousand years after Christ. They yeah. come way later than the Dead Sea Scrolls. Nevertheless, they preserve a much earlier uh, uh, tradition, manuscript tradition, because they they have a conservative spelling for Samuel and Kings, and they they keep the full spelling in in Chronicles. So that's an mm -hmm. amazing thing to point to. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it's. I think it's helpful too. It's instead of because it, it sometimes sounds because I've read some of these textual critics. I've read Driver. We read we read through um, Daniel and Aramaic last year for for Westminster, and so we we were pointed some some of these articles. And sometimes their method was was almost too simple. We we're like that that can't be like that. This is not that simple. There like there must be something else coming on. Like it's it's too cut and dry. We're like, oh yeah, this is kind of our presupposition. Therefore, our presupposition is like it, it comes with this process and therefore this book must have been written at this time. It's like, I don't, I don't think it was that I don't think it was that simple. There, there's there's other like you said, there's other stuff going on at this time period. So it's it's a it's a like a multifaceted discipline versus just very simple cut and dry. Well, here it is. Hey, all this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step -step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So... Get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guilt grace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. 
word from one of our sponsors, Westminster Seminary, California. Their upcoming seminary for a day, Friday, October 28th, the seminary I graduated from just a couple months ago. If you or someone you know feels called to serve the church and want to be better equipped, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution that offers master's programs in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. And West Cal is unique in its approach to a rigorous education because it emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages. You will learn Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and you will use these extensively in every one of your classes, and you'll be comfortable reading the Bible in the original languages for preaching. It intentionally maintains a small student-to-professor ratio, so you'll know your fellow students, and you'll also get to know your professors really, really well. And it's one of the few seminaries in America that focuses on face-to-face education with no online elements. And they understand the importance of having pastor scholars, so all of the teachers, all the professors at Westminster, they're all pastor scholars who have extensive experience in ministry, training the next generation of leaders and pastor scholars in the church. But don't just take my word for me, even though I went to Seminary for a Day in March of 2019 and eventually graduated in May of 2022, go visit the campus yourself. West Cal is offering this Seminary for a Day on October 28th, like I said, where you can sit in on classes, probably two to three classes, meet other students who are also interested and meet current students and and pick their brains, have lunch with the professor, get to know him, pick his brain as well, and see the campus housing, which is gorgeous and about half to a third of the cost of anything else. So it's, it's actually affordable now to live on campus and in San Diego and the amenities, including a gym, which I loved in person. This visit will also include a special Reformation Day lecture by our good friend of the show and professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster, Dr. R. Scott Clark, why the Reformation matters for ministry. And if you need help with your travel expenses, West Cal offers a $400 travel grant to help cover any expenses of the visit. So you can see if this might be the next step for you. It was the step that really solidified the decision for me and I'm confident it will do the same for you. So go to www.wscal.edu for more information or go to our show notes and click that link in our show notes. It'll take you to this. Go sign up and we might see you there at Westminster Seminary, California. Hey guys, a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Reformation Heritage Books. We've partnered with them and they've partnered with us to try to push a couple of their uh, published books. One of them is the 10 volume series of William Perkins, who a 16th and 17th century reformed writer, wrote commentaries on Galatians, Revelation, uh, wrote The Golden Chain of Salvation, some incredibly influential works in reformed theology. Also, the Family Worship Study Guide, which gives you quick little snippets, about a paragraph each of all 66 books of the Bible, each chapter in those books. So it's really good for family worship. And also they have basically every major publisher uh, in the world. They sell their books at cheaper than Amazon uh, sells them. So if you guys go to heritagebooks.org, drop a line that Guilt, Grace, Gratitude sent you and purchase their books. We'd be grateful and you're supporting a great cause.
Yeah, and RHB Books is the largest confessionally reformed publisher in the world, and they publish historical and modern works on a consistent basis. So you can find them on Twitter at RHB underscore books and on Instagram, Reformation Heritage Books. Yep. So go on over there, get these books. There's so much good stuff coming out, and hopefully this is good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're getting the sense that the Old Testament sort of textual criticism is and the study of the language is really uh, it's got a lot of factors and, yeah. and nuances involved. And it just it's tricky. Actually, in recent years, there's been a bit of a controversy about whether we can even uh, reliably date uh, or at least roughly date um, Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures. And there's a certain school of thought of scholars which say that. All of the Hebrew Bible is simply uh, a single period uh, piece of uh, well, collection of writings. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I wouldn't be as skeptical as they are, but at the same time, I think it's it's helpful to see that they provide a little bit of a corrective, a pushback at the confidence that an earlier generation of scholars had that, oh, we can know exactly the, the approximate time period of these uh, certain writings. Yeah. Uh, now, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It's not so easy to, to, to grasp at. And we should distinguish... The fact of language change Mm -hmm. from our ability to detect that language change within writings, because writing is not the same thing as as language itself, as spoken language. Now, they're related, obviously, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, you know, children are not taught to speak. But they do need to learn writing as a system. It's, it's so it's in a sense it's more artificial and removed. It's a it's a human technology that is put on top of uh, language itself. Yeah. Yeah, one quick statement, but uh, if it's okay, I, I I like where you're saying about um, the language change over a long period of time. You, you explained that very well, and you know, there in that thousand year period of the Old Testament being written, that makes a lot of sense. I've I've never really heard anybody explain it that thoroughly before, so that's good. And something that we can practically see in our modern time, for an example of that, is if you try to read Shakespeare written. What, 500 years ago? Yeah, yeah. It does not, it's really hard to even. Different than our poets today. Yeah, it's, it's just, even though it's English, it, 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 it takes an extra level of concentration to be like, oh, how, what, what is he saying? So, um, yeah, it, it just makes a lot of sense to kind of what you're saying, you know. Yeah. Now that's, yeah, that's helpful. And so, and related to this, and you, you talked about kind of your own background and related languages to the Old Testament. And so people may not know some of this stuff, but I do think it, it helps us a little bit because it helps us helps us know where scholars are coming from when we like little textual notes at the bottom of our Bibles, or we have an ESV study Bible, whatever it is. Um, we're like, where did they get this word, or what, like, why does this word mean this thing? Um, so how how does the study of other languages outside of the Bible, outside of Hebrew or Aramaic, um, how do those help us understand the Old Testament a little bit better? Because some people might say, like, well, the Bible is not written in Akkadian or Ugaritic or all these other random languages. So, yeah. like, why do we have to study this to learn Hebrew or the Old Testament better? Yeah. Well, let me pile on another complexity here with Old Testament. <laughs> and you guys are probably going to be groaning. But with with the New Testament, um, we it's an amazing state of affairs. We have thousands and thousands of extra biblical contemporary documents in 
uh, Koine Greek. So mm-hmm. th- the term New Testament Greek is a little bit of an artificial term. There's no such thing really as New Testament Greek. It's simply yeah. the language of the time, and it was used to write the New Testament. And it's very, very helpful, beneficial to have these tax receipts and marriage records and other things that we see in Egypt and other places which offer us uh, a window into how Greek was being used at that time. And so it helps us to to calibrate what we are to do with the New Testament. When the New Testament uses a particular term, we're, we're kind of tempted to think, oh, this is like a Holy Spirit language. And we got <laughs> yeah. terms like grace and justification yeah. and faith. Well, yeah, these are ordinary terms that people have, use every day, yeah. right? Yeah. So how do they how do they tr- how do they get transferred from ordinary usage into the New Testament? It's really helpful to look at those background documents. We don't have that with Hebrew, unfortunately. And so we're we have we're dealing with a situation where in Hebrew, this ancient language, we have thousands of words which only occur one time in the entire Old Testament. What are you to do? How are you to what are you to make of that mm-hmm. that word that only occurs one time? You have to go outside for different resources. Now, even the earlier you go, the, the more drastic it becomes. So in the time around the time of Hezekiah, the King Hezekiah, which is, you know, he was around the uh, uh, the middle of the uh, the first millennium BC. Uh, we have some contemporary documents, uh, you know, on pot sherds and, and so forth. But it, as the further back you go, the more difficult it goes. And, and even with that, it, there's very limited evidence. So we turn to other Semitic languages, which are related, kind of genetically related to Hebrew in order to get a sense, hopefully, uh, how other languages are using cognate words words which are related to that other uh the 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 case of hebrew but we have to be very careful because uh when you when you you guys know that the language is changing and when these two languages are now diverging let's say hypothetically you talk about ugaritic and hebrew at one point back in time they originally were one language Hmm. and then these speech communities split and they went their separate ways now, at this point, these two speech communities are now developing in different directions. The languages are changing, and they're changing in different ways. So when you see a word that's related here to this word, cognate, you have to be a little bit careful. You have to be cautious because it could be the case that over time, this word has diverged from that word, which is cognate with it in Hebrew, if you compare Ugaritic to Hebrew. Nevertheless, it's still our, it's better than nothing. And we want to make all use of all the evidence that we can. I mean, one, one comparison I might give is the word uh, for train in German is Zug. And that's actually genetically related to our English word tug. Hmm. Zug and tug. You see how they kind of sound similar? Yeah. But here's the problem. In German, that word means train. <laughs> in English, it means a tug. Mm-hmm. You can see the connection. It's a tug, but the words now mean different things. So we have to be very careful. Let's say a scholar a thousand years from now is looking at English. He's trying to understand what the word tug means. Well, he might make the connection with tug, but he still has to be careful about really establishing what the words mean in each of the languages. That's mm-hmm. kind of the flavor of the situation we're dealing with Ugaritic. We have to be careful in other, other Semitic languages because there are other ones besides Ugaritic. Hmm. Um, you have to be careful how we use this evidence, but it's we're thankful for it because at least it gives us a window into understanding Hebrew. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So before before Nick asks, just just can maybe tie a, a, a bow on this point uh, for those who are listening. Just to, maybe if I if I have this right, 
So we have a lot of documents around Koine Greek, so you can call it New Testament Greek, Koine Greek, that are the same, like, they, they look the same, they smell the same, they taste the same, like, they, like it, it roughly means the same stuff, because they've oh, we have contemporary. a contemporary. Yeah, contemporary, yeah. Versus the Old Testament Hebrew, um, we don't have a bunch of contemporary stuff, so we have to look at a bunch of other languages, a bunch of other kind of, like, family stuff to help us better understand the Hebrew. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah, and another thing that scholars in previous generations have been making use of, because remember, Ugaritic was only discovered about a century ago, and people, scholars, didn't know some of these other languages as, as well. They So a, a big source of information for us is, how, what does the Septuagint do? How yeah. do the Septuagint, which is our earliest translation of the Old Testament, how do they translate these words? That might give us a window into understanding maybe the sense of the word. And one example I could give you is, the really uh, disputed passage in Isaiah 7, uh, the prophecy oh, yeah. of the virgin. That's right, yeah. So the Parthenos. Hebrew word there is Alma. Oh, yeah, Alma, Al Al yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, scholars who are more critical will say, wait a minute, Alma doesn't mean virgin, it just means young woman. Yeah. But in the Septuagint, for some reason, the translators decided to use the word parthenos, mm -hmm. which definitely does mean, it can only mean virgin. Virgin, yeah. Now, this happened before the time of Jesus. So it's not like they were being influenced yeah. by, you know, these are Jewish uh, scholars, translators who are doing this. There's no reason for them to, to choose parthenos, virgin, yeah, they're not, unless they're not the word really contextually means virgin. Yeah. Hmm. That's a, yeah, it's a good point. And yeah. Let me just say to uh, for people who have studied Hebrew, I, I'm not saying that Alma is exactly equivalent to Parthenos and that it can't mean young woman. But it's just interesting to me that they decided to use the word Parthenos to translate Alma. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah, and, um, you know, earlier part of the conversation, I scribbled something down. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I'll, I'll bring out before my... My last question, because I don't know if I'll get a chance to <laughs> say it. <laughs> Do it. Um, yeah, no, it's, it, I don't know if you all have any feedback on this, but it's just something kind of brought to light is you're mentioning, you know, during the Old Testament uh, writing period is a thousand year period, 1400 BC to 400 BC. That obviously spans over multiple generations of authors. So the authors in the Old Testament were new, the old, earlier Old Testament books already. They, they referenced them. They knew them. And the, the, the authors and the scribes, they knew them pretty well. The, the New Testament um, authors, it, it was a couple decades of it being written. So um, the New Testament authors also knew the Old Testament very well. And Paul knew Paul is a Pharisee. Like he knew the Old Testament really stinking well. Um, but it's likely that they didn't really reference other New Testament books because it was a shorter, much tighter, shorter period of time that they were writing the New Testament. So what they both have in common, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is they both referenced the Old Testament. Yeah. So and there may they, be one or two references in the New Testament within yeah. the New Testament, but those yeah. are Correct. really far and few. Yeah. Totally. It's yeah, mainly yeah. the Old Testament that everyone is dealing with. Yeah. yeah. Yes, correct. So, and even like the earliest Old Testament writings are even more relied on because they were like, they've been, you know, referenced even more than, you know, as time has gone on. So I don't know if that plays into any extra com comments or how even the Septuagint then kind of takes that 
um, knowledge and looking into the reference of the Old Testament as well. Yeah, one thing that I think is really interesting to me is, and this relates to the question of what is the goal of Old Testament textual criticism? What kind of text do we want to reconstruct? Now, I think in recent decades, um, there's been more of a, an, uh, an, uh, an emphasis in, in biblical theology of the Old Testament in the, the study of the final canonical form yep. as a whole. And I think there's even evidence scholars like John Salehammer would see a, a distinct messianic structure to even mm -hmm. the form of the, the, the whole books, the, the, the ordering. Now that this is a debated issue and there, there's kind of back and forth between, you know, various scholars about yep. this. But when you look at, for example, the very last verses of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy, Mm -hmm. There's a, a claim. This is the death of, of Moses. Yeah, and there's a remark that yep. there has never arisen a prophet like Moses since that time. Now you're wondering, okay, if this is Joshua, I mean, wouldn't you give a little time for maybe some other great <laughs> prophet to arise? Yeah. I mean, how do you know? Yeah. Maybe there'll be great prophets that come after this. I mean, what about Elisha and Elijah and all these others? Yeah. But what if we consider this to be a parenthetical closing mark to close oh. off the, the Pentateuch inserted by, let's say, Ezra or someone like him around mm -hmm. 400, you know, around the time of the completion of the new, the Old Testament as a remark in anticipation of a Messiah saying, yep. look, we don't have the figure that Moses himself said, there shall arise one like me whom you shall obey. And yet mm -hmm. the answer is, we haven't had one yet. Hmm. So I think we really ought to focus as evangelicals on not trying to get behind the Old Testament sources and in and and using our textual criticism to to maybe think of well, what's the earliest uh stage of, of the Old Testament? Try to to think that we can reconstruct something of to that effect. It's it's good to think about those things, but the main focus should be on the final text as it is sort of a completed canon as it is is going forth um, to believers for, during that intertestamental period when there's this great messianic expectation and and hopes until we finally get the incarnation of Christ and it's like wow the Old Testament is now being fulfilled it's amazing amazing series of events yeah but, yeah that's a good way to to know that we haven't recorded this yet but it's going to come before your episode two episodes before but we have Dr Stephen Chapman coming on to talk about exactly this issue. And he makes exactly that point in his book where we're, we're dealing with the, what we call the received text, or this is yeah. what, what Deuteronomy says, what Micah says at the very end of Micah. And there's seems to be some cohesion between this. And so they're looking forward to something and they know something's coming. The New Testament authors receive this and say, okay, they're looking for this. Now we see him and now we write in the same tradition as they did. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it. It's a good way to, to know, to rely on the codified way the codified version you're talking about. Um, so this is my final question, and then I'll let you guys kind of wrap it up, and I'll try to keep up. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, another big issue is the dating of our manuscripts. So we talked about the definition of manuscripts a little bit earlier. Um, do we have anything close to the time that they were written? So matching up the time of the manuscript um, to the date, the dating they are written. Um, and if, in, if, if we don't have something close to that time, these were written, can we still have confidence that we do have it as the word of God? Yeah. 
You know, one of the uh, issues that people, I think, um, confuse or get confused by in, in terms of uh, intellectual criticism is, number one, um, scholars like Bart Ehrman have uh, compared textual criticism to the telephone game. Yep. Or to the, the, the process of manuscript transmission. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the telephone game, you whisper something into one ear, you get a little bit of corruption of that message, and you whisper it to the next ear, then the next ear, then the next ear, and the next ear, and so forth. Um, and then you end up with a garbled message. Oh, look, we have a, a, a problem here. Now, that's really a very crude and imperfect analogy for the historical scenario whereby both the New Testament and the Old Testament uh, developed, especially for the Old Testament, because there's good evidence that there was a central um, copying center located at the temple, which was authoritative for the transmission of the text. And so you would have most likely master copies that are held there and the the texts are then compared against that uh master text for accuracy's sake so that's where the the telephone game completely breaks down as as a as a model at least it's very incomplete now another thing i would say is that in the case of the old testament dating is a little bit um is a little bit misleading it's also misleading in a sense in the new testament because we can have better manuscripts which are later than earlier manuscripts. They're just copied better. They're in a more faithful stream, textual stream. And that's definitely in some cases, to some degree, what we have in the in the situation with the Old Testament, because I, I mentioned this before, but the, the Masoretic tradition as a tradition is an extremely faithful copying tradition. And so in some respects, the text that we see in these later medieval manuscripts is more faithful than the much earlier manuscripts we see in the in the in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls they have they're they're different they're of different characters. So the scholars will often group them according to certain characteristics. And there's one group which is called the Proto-Masoretic tradition. That's because they're before the Masoretes. The Masoretes hadn't arrived on the scene yet, and yet they're in that same stream to, to the point that they're letter for letter exactly the same with these later witnesses. And that tells you that there's the, there's been this tradition that is going back all the way through the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, at least some of them, and then presumably further back. Um, it's at least with the reading tradition. So when you, once you get to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have only a couple of centuries between that time period and mm -hmm. let's say the the completion of the Old Testament canon. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of centuries before that. So you're dealing with at most a few centuries of a gap there. Hmm. Yeah, that's and it, it's the reason why yeah, we have that question here too is I think like you said it, it tends to be kind of a, a getcha from like new testament old testament critics who say like oh well you can't really trust this because it's so far after when the old testament or new testament was finished how can you be anywhere near confident that they have anything close to what they have and like you said it's it's not necessarily although we do have some earlier manuscripts that are faithful it's not necessarily the distance between the time that they were completed and when the manuscript when we have the copy it's how faithful is the copy to the original stuff that we have so it's I think it's a it's a nuance we have to think about some of these things too. And I, I just have to add a final proviso. I'm just thinking of scholars who might be chiming in and, and protesting. And I, <laughs> I, I want to acknowledge that there are certain books 
of the Old Testament for which the Masoretic tradition is not as faithful, it seems. Yeah. It hasn't come down to us as faithfully. And so it's in some cases, it might be more important to rely on other translations, such as the, especially the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. But I think we, we don't want to get carried away with that because, first of all, Septuagint is a translation. And so it's always going to be uh, a, an extra step involved in trying to hypothesize what kind of Hebrew text lies behind that translation. Mm -hmm. And another thing is to note that um, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them, uh, may be uh, in indicating a, a more inferior uh, tradition. Now, we have to be uh, open to anything. We have to be willing to say that maybe our, our Masoretic tradition in, in some of the books is not as good. One of the questions is, uh, in the case of uh, Jeremiah, there's a debate, you know, yeah. which of the which edition of Jeremiah is more faithful um, yep. to the to the original text. But I, I would say that those are maybe somewhat peripheral issues, and we, we can still work on them, and we want to work on them. But the main thing I want to highlight is the fact that we are a little bit unclear, uncertain about aspects of our Old Testament doesn't negate the rest of that Old Testament. The analogy I really like that uh, Dr. Williams has used, and I really think is, is brilliant, is that it's not like the game of Jenga, where if you take away one piece, the whole building collapses. God's people throughout the centuries have often only had portions of yep. God's word available to them, and yet they've been edified by that. They've been it's been wonderful for them. And we're we're grateful to have all of God's word essentially uh, here with us. And the better analogy, I think, would be something like and he's, he's used this analogy thinking of enriched uranium. So you can have uranium enriched to a certain percentage. And it's still good. It does. It does. It's it's all about the percentages. So we can be we can approximate uh, more and more closely what the autographs were to the best of our knowledge. But that's you know it doesn't make the whole the rest of the Old Testament collapse. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, that's that that's and I think that's that that dives into that bridges into this last question um, as we conclude this. I think really really well because. Um, there might be a few scholars, and I'm sure there's a few scholars who listen to this, and they're really interested, like, oh, they're kind of eating this stuff up, and this is right down their alley. But our guess is a vast majority of our listeners, I mean, they, they don't have any training, they, they don't have any languages, or like, I've, some of this stuff is brand new to me. Um, so maybe two kind of two basic questions. Um, first, like, if your average rank and file Christian is just in the pews reading their English Old Testament, like, how does this affect them? Um, why is something they should be thinking about? And then if they're interested in this stuff, what, what resources can they use to really help them better understand this stuff and help them better understand their Old Testament? Yeah. Uh, in, in textual criticism, it, it's often the case that people will think, okay, that's like a really esoteric, bizarre thing. Yeah. You're fascinated with counting little letters. You're talking about minute details. And let me say that that's, in a sense, I'm I'm glad about that. That you know, us nerds can can geek out about some of these issues because I, I would say that in the vast majority of cases, the variants that we see uh, are not um, are not significant theologically. So the the really big uh, variants that we all are talking about are the theolo potentially theologically significant variants. At the same time, as an evangelical with a high view of scripture. I want to, I, I care about the details of God's word. I mean, Paul talked about 
you know, there's a debate about whether or not he's using the subjunctive or the the pre, uh, the active, not the active, but the the the, the indicative um, in in uh, Romans five one. I mean, it, do we have right now uh, peace with God, or let us have peace That's with right, God? Yeah. I mean, these these issues matter. They they might not change. Uh, ultimate large theological categories, but we want to be as precise as we can and glorify God in our study of God's word. We want to treasure his word and want to understand it the best way possible. And textual criticism is one means of doing that. And there are also a couple of uh, cases where in the Old Testament, the variants are quite significant. For example, in Psalm 22, a famous psalm which Jesus utters on his lips as he's being crucified, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a verse there in verse 16 where um, our, a lot of our Bibles will have uh, uh, something to the fact of they pierce my hands and my feet. Hmm. Now, if you go to the Masoretic texts uh, on on the face of it, well, essentially what the text says, it doesn't say that. It says, my hands are like a lion. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, okay, that's that's significant variant. Um, and so we, we want to, that's, that's going to stimulate guys like me. And I think uh, it, it should stimulate lay people as well to be, to care about these issues and to, to know as best, as much as we can about um, the, the, the basic facts and what's going into the considerations uh, about uh, determining how we go about figuring out what, what God's word should read or to the best of our knowledge, what we should reconstruct. So hmm. that I think is just a sort of a broad yeah. uh, look at what's important and why, why we should care about it. Yeah. I and for resources, also... yeah, you wanted me to mention some resources. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's you know there's really no great lay level introduction. I would say to the 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 discipline of Old Testament textual criticism. Now there is a book called Old Testament Textual Criticism by Ellis Brotsman and, and Eric Tolley. I think one of them uh, one of them has appeared on um, on your podcast. Yeah, yep, yeah. I think Eric it does Tully. really kind of require some familiar familiarity with Hebrew, but I think you can still read some of the chapters with, with some profit. Yep. Another resource I would really recommend is the Texan Canon Institute, a website yep. uh, run by Dr. Gurry and uh, John Mead, uh, Dr. Mead, uh, both of them my friends at uh, Phoenix Seminary, and they have various articles. One of them is mine that has appeared in uh, recently, and they have uh, also, they're graded by scale, beginner, intermediate, and hmm. advanced. And so Anyone, there's something for everyone there. It's a great resource for understanding a little bit about what goes into both New Testament and Old Testament textual criticism. Mm. I'd highly recommend that resource. Another book that's recently come out by Crossway, the Septuagint and why it, what it is and why it matters. There's a there's a whole can of worms about what the Septuagint is and why it matters because it's important for the New Testament. A lot of New Testament authors are using the Septuagint as the quoting from the Old Testament, and you've had uh, uh, Dr. Ross appear, I think, on uh, your. Um, mm. Or no, was Dr. Lanier? Yeah, we are. Uh, yeah, we had both of them. On both that. of them oh, are yeah. great, great guys. Uh, uh, and that book I would recommend as a resource, uh, an introduction to some of these issues yeah. because that really overlaps with Old Testament textual criticism in a lot of ways. Awesome. I think also yeah. uh, just to add to your answer that Peter asked, because it's it's directed to like your average rank and file Christian, your layperson, which I would consider myself. I don't have a formal education in this stuff, but being interested and involved for all the reasons that you mentioned, Casper, uh, would also be helpful for me to just serve as an apologetics to unbelievers. I mean, 
we get this question from atheists and skeptics and non-believers all the time. The, the Bart Ehrman kind of thing that you were just mentioning, the the telephone game. This is a common thing. And yeah. so I, I got the, it last week. Yeah. From oh, yeah. my wife's uncle. And, yeah. and and exactly. And instead of having all these all all of us Christians that are just kind of like stuck on our heels, we at least now can have like a really good answer. And people are like, wow, I've never actually had a Christian clarify that for me. Thank you. It could change a lot of minds. It could actually uh, turn, uh, help, help introduce the gospel down the road to a non-believer. So I think just apologetics that the, the spirit of this whole season yeah, is um, a big, a big part of that. Yeah. And, and just as a final recommendation, I, I would be remiss if I forgot to mention my own uh, Tyndale house where I worked uh, three and yeah, a half years. Yeah. They've got a lot of great There's articles, resources. So and I highly recommend them. So I would uh, turn there as well. I mean, they, and they're great guys and, and I really um, love them. And it's my colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Dr. Dr. Oslins, thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you for researching and put all the stuff. I don't, I don't know. Do you, do you have anything that yourself kind of on the horizon that you're working on and that you're, you're hoping will, will come out or just projects that are kind of on your, on your task? Yeah. I, I've got uh one, one project, which is interesting is a kind of a, broad uh spectrum of it's kind of a handbook on using linguistics in biblical studies so mm -hmm. there are various schools of linguistics the kind of linguistics that i was trained in and i i represent is called historical linguistics you've been dealing with historical issues about how language changes over time mm -hmm. but that is i think a, an important tool that biblical scholars could use understanding how languages change can help you in studying the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek even of the New Testament. And so that is a chapter that I'm writing for. A, it's an edited volume that's going to come out with IBR, um, hopefully not too far in the future. And uh, another uh, work, I'm working on an article. It's kind of on the back burner right now, but I'm looking at some of the uh, origins, history of um the Ugaritic alphabet. It's a cuneiform alphabet, which is, uh, is fascinating because... Uh, the order of the letters is essentially the same as that of our familiar Hebrew alphabet mm -hmm. and ultimately even the Greek alphabet, which is a descendant of or it's related to kind of a cousin of the Hebrew alphabet. Mm -hmm. So the question I'm trying to answer is, what's the exact relationship between these wedge shapes, which represent ultimately the same um, letter forms as the alphabet that we come to know? And because there's a particular letter that occurs at the end, it's out of out of place, and it is a, a a rare letter that is not very common in the text that we read at Agart. And so I'm trying to uh, assess what's the what's the origin of of that letter and how it fits in with the rest of the um, script. Awesome, cool, so, kind of obscure, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure we have people on this, and I mean I'm interested, but I'm, I'm sure we have people on who are listening to us who would be interested in some of that stuff too but yeah we'll we'll post up your bio and, and the stuff that you're working on text and can and all these different resources but yeah like i said thanks for coming on thanks for diving into this issue it's it's wide it's nuanced it's difficult but like you said ultimately it's it's fresh christians to know that what we have in the text is is what we should have in the text and it it points us to our savior so thanks to thanks for coming on for talking about this for your research all this stuff and yeah we'll uh we'll hopefully have you on again sometime in the future yeah thanks guys Thank you. 
Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, This is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.